0: Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson.
1: And I'm Gary Anderson. And
0: we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Before the premiere of the third and final season of Star Trek Picard, we thought we would bring you a special episode in which we will discuss our 10 favorite Star Trek episodes of the 2022 calendar year. It took us a while to come up With a consensus, (laughs) but we finally narrowed our picks down to 10, plus one honorable mention. By the way, we are also going to add several of our listeners' comments on their favorite episodes. Following that discussion, we'll talk about what we hope to see during Picard's third season. We'll then end our podcast with a roundup of the latest Star Trek news.
1: So now we'll start off with our top 10 Star Trek episodes of 2022. We didn't rank our list, so we will be discussing them by series. Adele will start off with our one pick for Star Trek Discovery's fourth season. Now, before we begin, we need to make it clear. We think it's important to say that we do think there were other worthy episodes in in Discovery's fourth season, such as The Examples, And Stormy Weather. Um, However, those episodes were broadcast in 2021 and not 2022. We were trying to stick to the calendar year of 2022. So due to that technicality, they were not eligible for this list. So let's get started with Star Trek Discovery.
0: All right. So our one pick from the 2022 uh, episodes was Coming Home. We chose Coming Home, Discovery's fourth season finale, as one of the top ten episodes. This episode still had its issues, primarily concerning the season's true villain, scientist Ruan Tarka. Yet, gratefully, he is dispensed with halfway into the episode. Another flaw was the lack of serious consequences faced by Book for his complicity in adding to the crisis that actually could have led to the death of billions of beings throughout the universe.
1: Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that got us bothered about that, the the tail end of the season, was how the chase after Tarka and Book was so reminiscent of the slow chase of after oj simpson and the white bronco it kind of dragged on for quite a long time oh
0: yeah definitely however this episode made the top 10 list for three reasons the episode's theme of our interdependence on each other cannot be overstated on our own planet we're currently living with the consequences of the human effects on climate change Increasing our carbon footprint has consequence for insects, birds, and other animals that depend on plants in one way or another. We know that if we don't identify and practice ways to decrease our negative impact on the climate, we'll be resigning future generations to a dire fate. Second, watching an episode for this critique... I was once again taken by the pairing of Admiral Vance and Tilly in a series of very smart, thoughtful, and yet intimate scenes. When Vance opened the door to discuss any regrets, Tilly took the moment as an opportunity to inventory her many blessings. That was evidence of a more mature Tilly than the one we remember from the first two seasons, and appeared to be an outgrowth of her experience mentoring Starfleet cadets in season three and into four. Finally, I want to give voice to comments by listener Ramona Lucius, who I wholeheartedly agree with. She writes, the relationship between book and Captain Michael Burnham is a love story told through absence and intimate knowledge of each other this specific episode held a scene that gave her a new experience as an audience member you know the scene that I'm talking about this is what she's saying Uh, if you grew up loving science fiction and never seen yourself in command Now, Ramona doesn't specifically state which scene she is referring to. However, I think it has got to be the one when Book is being transported off his doomed ship to the Discovery, but his signal is so weak that Discovery loses it and Book is presumed dead. Tears begin streaming down Bruno's face as the full realization of what has happened overcomes her. Then, in less than a minute, She has to pull it together and reassume command, knowing the fate of the universe is in her hands. Kudos to Sonequa Martin-Green for another stellar performance. With each episode, Sonequa proves herself to be the heart and soul of the show.
1: Yeah, there were some really wonderful moments throughout this entire fourth season of the show, Um, and I'm just sorry that, they didn't handle how they were going to deal with the tail end as well as they possibly could because the la- this last episode was really stellar. The production values and everything else were just a strong, strong, um, strong element to the show and sh- showed its strength.
0: Definitely. Yeah.
1: So let's move on to Star Trek Prodigy. For twenty episodes, Prodigy entertained us with a show designed to introduce Star Trek to a younger audience. What was the result? They gave this new audience what the original series gave me as a kid, the hope that humanity could eventually overcome its fears and prejudices, the same ones that we deal with today. But Prodigy did it by introducing us to a diverse group of young people seeking to live their best lives in pursuit of their own dreams. Listener Mark Hyland actually shared his thoughts.
0: A big surprise to me was the premiere of Prodigy, which I expect to be just for kids. And it definitely had plenty to keep the adults entertained as well. Very well done animation, as well as writing, acting, and direction. To top it off... More returning characters from Voyager and The Next Generation and delightful new ones, including a Medusan and a Telluride engineer. In fact, the only human on the bridge is the holographic Catherine Janeway, which is unique. Mentored by the holographic persona of a Starfleet officer who embodied the values of Starfleet was founded on Doll Gwen Jacob Pog, Rock Talk, and Zero grow more than they thought possible. Now let's look at some of the episodes of Prodigy.
1: Yeah, my pick was Time Amok. It illustrated a milestone in the character's growth and development into a cohesive, interdependent team in the, in the series. After performing poorly on their first first contact mission, Hollow Janeway sought to demonstrate the importance of collaboration and appreciating the unique approaches to problem solving that each one of the characters could bring. A lesson Janeway couldn't get across in her holodeck simulation about safely crossing a river with a sack of grain, a chicken, and a fox. Their early attempts ended in failure because they didn't take the exercise seriously. And after drifting into a tachyon storm, the crew was fractured in time, displacing each member into a different temporal phase where time passed at different speeds. On top of that, the storm triggered a warp core breach, leading to the destruction of the ship and everyone on board. Now, when the outcome of fixing the warp core became life and death, they all realized they had no choice but to rely on each other and to solve their collective problem. By using their diverse talents and experiences, each crew member contributed to the solution. Now, Janeway served as a mentor and provided continuity and information between each crew member. Jacob Pogg was the first to identify the problem and what needed to be addressed in order to stabilize the warp core. Zero created the schematics for the Warcore Matrix t- to share them with the other members who were not technically back, uh, strong. And Dahl built the original Matrix device. And Gwen stopped Dreadnought from gaining control of the ship and recorded a game changing message that inspired Rock Talk. And then Rock Talk taught herself over time the relevant science related topics to build the warp matrix and connect it to the Protostar engine to stabilize the warp drive. Her actions of believing in herself first, that she was capable of doing that, and then executing, saved the ship and the lives of her crewmates. Time Amok also provided both Dahl and Rock Talk opportunities to show some level of growth. In this episode, Rock Talk goes from being seen as useful only because of her size and strength to showcasing her ability to master high-level science and engineering techniques. She saves everyone by believing in herself and refusing to give up. Also, out of frustration at their failure, Dale openly admits to the hollow Janeway hologram that they weren't Starfleet cadets. This is the first time he fesses up about who and what they are and what, how they've acquired the protostar. His confession was a necessary step towards building a relationship based on trust, transparency, and honesty.
0: All right, so I'm going to talk about Mind Walk. The body-switching episode between Dahl and Vice Admiral Janeway was a fun and imaginative episode that included a few surprises. The main reason for the success of this episode rests on the performances of Brett Gray and Kate Mulgrew switching characters to portray Vice Admiral Janeway and Dahl, respectively. There are so many things that could have gone wrong with this idea. Yeah. The episode could have been hampered by the fact these actors don't regularly rehearse with one another. Right. In addition, you are recorded separately. Because of that, you aren't able to play off of how other voice actors are speaking. Thankfully, none of that had a negative impact on the voice performances. Both Mulgrew and Gray played their new roles to sheer perfection. Capturing the cadence and unique speech patterns of another actor is difficult as it is. Laying that responsibility on top of their storytelling duties highlights the difficulty of that task. It required both actors to play the general motivations and behaviors of a completely different character than the one they've been developing the entire season. In addition, Mulgrew has to play hollow Janeway with a different set of emotional reactions than the Admiral would have. Both Janeways feel different and distinct. Even in a scene where they have a lengthy exchange. Each performance had to be convincing in portraying who Janeway and Dahl were at that moment in the story. One is captured while the other is attempting to avoid capture. Gray had to convey the command and reasoning of a seasoned Starfleet officer, while grew had to present the confusion and anxiousness of a young orphan unskilled in hiding his emotions well. It required greater attention to how actors use infliction and tonality when they speak. Kate Mulgrew has been acting professionally since the 1970s, so this shouldn't have been too difficult for her to accomplish. But Brett Gray is a young artist. He hasn't even concluded his first decade as a professional actor. His ability to portray a confidence beyond his years was impressive. Obviously, congratulations sh- should also go to the show's voice director, Brooke Chalmers. The actors must have relied heavily on his instruction to ensure they captured everything the script needed in their performances.
1: Yeah, that was an that was a, a, a outstanding episode. Okay, let's go on to our third and final episode of Prodigy, and that's um, the season finale, the two-parter Supernova. The two-part season finale was a fitting conclusion to the season's story and provided a wonderful setup for season two. Um, Supernova part one was a thrilling and um, jam-packed installment of the show. The the main thrust of the story featured our heroes exhausting almost every imaginable course of action as they try to stop ascensia and the living construct from initiating their mission, leading to the complete annihilation of Starfleet. The genius of the Valdnikot's plan was built upon using Starfleet's natural openness against itself. It allowed a simple response to a ship's hail to serve as the way a deadly command virus is delivered, overriding the controls of any responding Starfleet vessel. That debris field that we saw from the destruction of the ships turning on themselves and shooting at one another was quite reminiscent of the aftermath uh, from Wolf 359, if you remember from The Best of Both Worlds, and what was left of the Starfleet after the Klingon War during Discovery's first season. Next season, it would have been helpful for, it, w- it will be helpful for the show to acknowledge that portion of their fleet has been destroyed and must be replaced. And so Starfleet won't be in the strong position that it had been prior to that. That's right. In Supernova Part 2, the journey of this first season of Prodigy concludes with a decision that is the only right decision, which is to destroy the protostar in order to give Starfleet a fighting chance of surviving the living construct's assault. Once again, the season finale episode highlights the growth of Dahl, Gwen, Rock Talk, Jenkum, and Zero from where they were at the end of Time Amok. Having learned the importance of working together with a shared confidence that they can solve the problem that's, that's confronting them, they earn the admiration of Starfleet as evidence of being accepted as cadets, even if it is on a provisional basis and under the supervision of Vice Admiral Janeway. Their next mission, I'm sure, will be to rescue Chakotay.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so we're gonna move on to Star Trek: Lower Decks. The series' third season tended to be inconsistent in quality, and still uncertain about the character arc for Mariner. Yet there was one episode that stood out above the rest. The season.
1: Now it's I'm, it's going to be clear that I'm extremely on brand by like saying the one episode I like, <laughs> that, that I thought was the best of Lower deck season was Hear All, Trust Nothing, the DS9 episode. The first time DS9 characters and circumstances have been featured in any of the Mo- Modern Trek series has been in Lower Decks. I'm, and I'm not talking about the prodigy scene where we have recordings of Odo playing. I'm talking about the characters being portrayed in a story, recording new information and presenting it um, as part of the storyline. Lower Decks offered us another solid episode with Here All Trust Nothing. It was a loving return to DS9 and that captured some of the charm and a lot of the detail of the beloved series. The episode continued a trend that had started the week before with Reflections, where they balanced humor, compelling story, and significant character development while also creating probably the most joy-filled, nerdy fan service episode that they could for the series. The three-pronged story doesn't feel overstuffed in the way that it was approached. The animators did an amazingly incredible job That that we creating recreating the interior and exterior design of the space station, the amount of detail they imbued every scene helped to capture all the important locations that we remember of the station. Ops, Kira's office, the colorful drapery of of Corks Bar, the ward room, and the promenade. Even the lighting, even the lighting used in the holding cells was recreated perfectly. The entire episode recreated the pastiche of DS9 wonderfully. The appearances of Kira and Quark, as voiced by Nana Visitor and Armin Shimmerman, respectively, were also real treats. Giving Kira a moment to silently look out at the wormhole as it opened through one of the portholes was a subtle nod to our desire to see a sign, if anything, of Cisco or even Odo's return through that hole. The episode gave us that moment, and Kira as well tossing Cisco's baseball up and down while talking to Cap- Captain Freeman. Despite this being a Deep Space Nine episode, however, more than half of the narrative was still devoted to the significant character development of both Mariner and Tindy. Uh, Hear All, Trust Nothing, expertly juggled all three stories well. And if you remember, once again, Tindy was struggling with her Orion identity. She's forced to confront it when she meets Mesk, another Orion member of Starfleet. Now, he's an aggressive male, always hinting at his escapades as a pirate, with as much force as Tindy tends to hide her background. This storyline had a thematic connection, since it was one of the main themes of of the Deep Space Nine series. In fact, accepting who you are to become your best self required you first to embrace who you are. Tendi learns that lesson when she must embrace her family's history as a member of the Orion Syndicate. She is forced to use her upbringing to save the day and rescue Cork from the Karamans, the alien species that are coming after him because he's stolen their technology. And likewise with Mariner, she too has to find herself because she's dealing with the awkward mission of her own, and that is meeting her girlfriend Jennifer's circle of friends. And unfortunately, that circle of friends is a group of pretentious, judgmental, new age types who make candles and do interpretive dance for fun. Now, throughout season three, Mariner is constantly being forced to decide who she wants to be. And that question has been brought up beforehand. But here, it was really put on a personal level. When she's invited to hang out, Mariner thinks her job is to effectively fake politeness and interest while trying to blend in. And she supposes that that she's supposed to ignore all the catty comments and subtle insults that are thrown her way just to keep the peace. But eventually she learns that Jennifer isn't interested in that. She wants Mariner's true personality to come out and tear into her obnoxious friends. And we all feel a sense of satisfaction when she pulls out the phaser and starts stunning everybody in that arrogant group. So for these and so many other reasons, this episode, Hear All, Trust Nothing, became an instant classic.
0: And a couple of our listeners agreed with that assessment. Those listeners were Tony Caselli and Mark Hyland. Both are huge fans of DS9 and were ecstatic about seeing a couple of their their favorite characters from their favorite Star Trek series. Tony commented,
1: Purely for nostalgia. I loved all of Lower Decks, but the episode that choked me up was the visit to Deep Space Nine. I miss that show. It was my fave, and I loved the Lower Decks approach. It was respectful, but poking fun at it at the same time. It was a great, heartfelt, but fun connection to the greater Trek universe.
0: Mark agreed,
1: saying, I have to say, a favorite of mine was Hear All, Trust Nothing, which featured Nana Visitor and Armish Shimmerman as Kira and Cork, two characters from my favorite Trek series, Deep Space Nine, and it continues to be smart, sharp, and funny.
0: Alright, so now let's go to the last series we're going to talk about, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. The newest addition to the Star Trek universe provided the best overall season, and arguably the best first season of any series of the franchise.
1: So one of the episodes that we picked as the best of season one was episode two children of the comet the second episode of strange world's inaugural season was another entertaining adventure for this prequel series it introduced us to a new alien species providing new background information on the character we think we've known for 56 years and showed up showed us a starfleet captain struggling with an ancient debate do we live our lives under the control of free will or divine will? That's that's a story that goes back to actually Oedipus Rex when you think about it, you know, ancient Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, although the main conflict was wrapped up by the end, we did have a glimpse that some of the story elements that, that might play out and did play out over the rest of the season. For almost 60 years, the Star Trek fans have finally been given an episode that focused specifically on the character of Nyota Uhura. Children of the Comet was the first in-depth exploration of her reasons for joining Starfleet. In fact, whether she should be part of Starfleet at all is a question first asked in this episode, and it informs Uhura's training over the course of the rest of the season. The Nyota Uhura we meet in this episode is a person in flux. The death of her parents and brother in a shuttle accident has devastated her world. The comfort and love that she felt from them is gone. And it sent her to Starfleet with a lost sense of purpose. And that thread of her life story has become unraveled and she doesn't know how or if She wishes to reconnect it in any way, shape or form. That tragic backstory gives this younger Uhura a sense of being adrift and unmoored in her own life. Her plan was to follow in her parents' path and teach at the University of Nairobi. And those are immediately abandoned because of the, that place would have been a constant reminder of their absence in her life. So ironically, Uhura tells her captain and crew mates, people who have fought hard to get to the positions to be part of the crew of the flagship of the Starfleet, that she's here simply because she remembered that her grandmother talked fondly about her career as a member of Starfleet. And in spite of being labeled as a linguistic prodigy who beat thousands of people who apply for the same job, to join the crew. She's unsure if this is where she belongs. The introduction of the alien species known as the Shepherds provide a counterpoint to Uhura's quest, where she is troubled by questioning the Shepherds live a life of certainty, grounded in faith. Where we witness a character wrestling with the path they should take, the Shepherds are people who are walking by faith and not by sight. Uhura is able to decipher the information that they are brought back from the comet, the device that they actually have to deal with for the majority of this episode, and she concludes that the musical notes create an image when formatted that matches the events that transpired when Spock used the shuttle to break off a portion of the comet to change his trajectory. Since the data had been captured hours before Spock executed his plan, it's hard to conclude anything other than that the path of the Mahanit was in any way but preordained. Now, we know that some fans of Star Trek believe religion has no place in this franchise, but that's a misreading of the facts. The belief in a spiritual power greater than man has been present in Star Trek since the second pilot of the original series. Much like Uhura does in in the episode uh, Bread and Circus in the original series, this Uhura also gives witness to actions that appeared to be an act of free will that could be seen as a preordained with a deeper inspection of the story. Her quest to identify a sense of purpose will continue throughout the season, resolving in the second to the last episode of it.
0: Yeah, and I just wanted to add on the religion part in Star Trek. Um, Some people uh, will say, oh, well, um, Roddenberry was irreligious, or some people even said, oh, he's an atheist. But that's actually not true. Uh, Even though um, uh, he grew up in, like a, in, the, in a church that followed the Southern Baptist Convention, um, that definitely wasn't the way he felt later on in his life. But um, he did feel that um, there was a spirituality. He just no longer believed in organized religion.
1: And I think we also need to um, divorce ourselves from the notion that everything that is Star Trek came from the fertile brain of Gene right, Rottenberry. Right, In fact, some of the best things in Star Trek are were ne- were something he never even thought of. Right,
0: that he got credit for. He got credit for, right.
1: you know. I mean, the entire characterization of Spock is more or less a, a formation of ideas from D.C. Fontana right. than it is from any other writer that was connected to that, that show.
0: Exactly. So
1: anyway... Um, but that's neither here nor there. I think that the this episode really is both a wonderful addition to the life and history of Uhura as right. a character. And it also presents yes. us with a really challenging philosophical epi- um, a dilemma that is something that has been in dramatic fiction for centuries.
0: Yes. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Memento Mori. Which I just really enjoyed. You know, watching these episodes again, I just really was engaged in this. So Star Treks are reintroduced to the Gorn in this episode. Mm. However, this version is far scarier, intelligent, and powerful than the laughable depictions uh, that you found in the original series and uh, in Star Trek Enterprise.
1: Well, and also they're faster.
0: They're faster, much faster. (laughs) In fact, we don't even get a glimpse of these foes, um, even when we visit one of their breeding planets. Repeated viewing of this episode does not diminish the tension, as it takes on the classic cat and mouse ambiance of a wartime submarine story. Here is why you've got to commend the writing staff for creating such an engaging, empathetic, and resourceful commander in the form of Captain Christopher Pike. Unlike most character depictions in the original series, the characters of Strange New Worlds do have memories. In In Memento Mori, the writers exploit the fact that Captain Pike's life-and-death decision-making must be influenced by the knowledge of his own fate. As he gives orders to the crew on how to deal with the Gorn, Pike is putting others in danger, knowing he doesn't equally share in their risk. He believes his life is not in danger. However, instead of behaving recklessly, this has made him take far more calculated risks. Pike's every thought goes directly to protecting his crew and surviving colonists in his charge. By example... Pike seeks to establish unique connections with key members of the crew, as a ship's captain should. One example is the nice relationship developing between Ortegas and Pike.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He's familiar with many of her arrogant claims about herself. Also, Pike has seen her drop that cocky exterior, as the gravity of a situation intensifies. He understands when to enable her wild child traits as much as he sees when she needs reassurances. If not from him, then from another officer. He uses a similar strategy with La'an as he encourages her to inspire hope in those serving under her based on her com excuse me, her commitment to speak the truth. Pike tailors his approach specifically to the crew members he's dealing with. Like Sinequa Martin-Green, Anson Mount's portrayal of Pike has made him the heart and soul of the series. In addition, throughout the season, we see how deep connections are built between other characters who are allowed to develop in ways never afforded the secondary characters of the original series. Instead of focusing on three main characters, Strange (laughs) New World's writers have developed meaningful relationships between a larger number of characters. La'an has a past that includes being saved by Una, but now she knows she has something in common with Spock, the loss of a sibling. We've seen Uhura develop connections with both Spock and Hemmer in times of crisis. Likewise, Una and Dr. Mbenga bonded over their respective secrets. That pays off when we see him volunteer to donate his blood to her as she recovers from surgery. It's not that Mbenga wouldn't have done it previously, but the kindness she showed him and his daughter in a previous episode Adds greater meaning to that act,
1: and in fact, what you're talking about is, I think, one of the unique, um, successful elements of Strange New Worlds. You know, if if you're right, when you look at most of the Star Trek series, they usually really center around three characters. You know, the original series, it's Bones, Spock, and Kirk, and with um, Str- Next Generation, it's Picard, Worf, and Data. In, in a lot of the storylines. Right. And then it's the odd, the odd thing out is Deep Space Nine, where the ensemble really gets a fair handling of episodes. That's right. And you don't really return to that until Strange New Worlds, where this this first season, with the exception of Ortega's, everybody got at least one or two episodes focused on them. That's right. Yeah. And that's, I think that's actually one of the things that makes this series so... Unique and successful re- as well. That's right. So let's go on to to the next episode that you picked.
0: The episode Spockamuck represents one of the season's humorous episodes. That, like Prodigy's My Walk, is a Freaky Friday mind swapping episode. Spockamuck focuses on character development, primarily involving the pairings of the patrolled couple. Spock and T'Pring as well as crewmates La'an Noonan Singh and Una Chin Riley. First let's look at Spock and T'Pring. From the very beginning of Spock we see that Spock is struggling with Vulcan acceptance of his identity. Being half human and half Vulcan is manifested and the dream sequence that begins the episode, as well as topring's comment about the decorations of his quarters. <laughs> Later on, he will have to endure hearing a Vulcan who has denounced logic, consistently uh, uh, insult humans and those who associate with humans. In the episode, it's clear that topring is committed to Spock. She has tolerated his Starfleet duties, interrupting the night of their engagement, she has decided to come to Star pay, Base One to prioritize their relationship to bring even brings along an assistant to handle a job related matter so she won't be disturbed while with Spock in exchange, she expects a similar level of devotion from her betrothed but while but what she receives from Spock are more excuses. This forces her to speak a truth to praying beliefs Spock is overlooking. She says, a shared acceptance of mutual sacrifice is crucial to a successful relationship. Mm. So it stands to reason that they would then swap bodies in an attempt to see things from another person's perspective. It becomes clear that the body swapping is the essence of mutual sacrifice for these two. Intended or not, it allows them to comprehend they have a shared set of values. Now, I want to talk about Una and La'an. When Number One and La'an find out that the crew have described them as where fun goes to die, (laughs) they want to try and understand what the lower deck members find so satisfying in a game they developed called Enterprise Bingo. Primarily, it's a series of tests where one is called on to break the rules. Considering they are the ones who created and enforced those rules, they don't see the advantage. Well, not at first. It's not until they experience the Rungovian solar sail ship's soar overhead that they comprehend the benefit is experiencing the unexpected. Rules put everything in order and make things predictable. Together, the two colleagues discover the true advantage of Enterprise Bingo is embracing the unknown and unpredictable. Yeah,
1: yeah, that, that episode is one of the, the uh, more enjoyable, lighthearted episodes yes. of the season. And I think that both of those storylines really plays into that. You know, it's it's it, the insight that Tapring finds in being in Spock's body and vice versa really helps. I think the strength in their relationship after right. after the after what they go through. So let's move on to one of my favorites, which was "All Those Who Wander." You know that that episode of Stranger Worlds continues the season's emphasis on the Gorn. We actually are reintroduced to them. Um from Memento Mori. The episode doubles down, however, on the menace and savagery of the species yes. <laughs> to, to an extreme manner. Um many fans will refer overall to the positivity uh that is inherent in Star Trek. And I although positivity is an aspect, I wouldn't say it's a overriding aspect of the of the series or the franchise. To me, What makes Star Trek so great is the malleability of the storytelling. I mean, you can have a horror story one week and then you can have a Western story. And next thing you have, like Spock and Muck, a comical uh, episode the following week. All Those That Wander is a perfect example of this. It is a horror story. It's very effective at building the tension and creating an atmosphere of terror where most of the characters that we are watching are safe from harm thanks to the significant amount of plot armor. As we've said before, most of the characters that we're watching in Strange New Worlds are legacy characters. We know where they end up in the future for the most part. So there's only a handful of characters that we don't know their fates. Or know what, what transpires. That's right. So when you put those characters in danger, and we still are concerned about their well-being, that's real achievement. That's right. It's very effective in building the tension. Um, it also it uses elements from John Carpenter's The Thing in how it creates its environment. Like The Thing, this story is placed in a cold temperature location. It steals from alien You know, we had the chest chest busting, and the extreme predatory nature of the the alien that that is chasing us. That too is is here, and a few there's other a few set pieces that people can find that come straight out of Jurassic Park, Um, the original episode, not the any of the sequels. Once again, the Gorn are presented as a mortal threat to other living beings from from birth. In fact, even. To their own siblings, you see, you, they, they are driven to be presented as the alpha, which results in a cannibalistic predisposition that is activated on, from hatching. You know, It's a ghoulish to witness. But also, all those who wander accomplishes significant character development, specifically in the case of Uhura. By this episode, the Uhura, who was afraid of every new experience and had was in, didn't know where she fit in, becomes a person who is freely serves herself up as bait to ensnare these violent predators. That's right. That's not something that she would have done, or we would have predicted that she would have done earlier in the season. That's right. This Uhura has been mentored by Hammer, and he has presented himself. As one who has devoted his living a purpose-driven life. And she's adopted that same philosophy by by this episode. And it'll be interesting to see how this Uhura embraces her new responsibilities as she takes a seat at communications aboard the Enterprise in season two. Spock also has some development as well. He's gone all through a journey of his own throughout this first season. And he's attempted to maintain a delicate balance between his emotional, human nature and his more analytical, colder Vulcan parts of his character. And throughout the season, that balance has been threatened by a series of unforeseen events, from being engaged to to praying and then being body swapped and or being used as a bargaining chip in a scheme to free his half-brother, Cybok, who knew he was going to be coming back. That's right. (laughs) Um, That balance has not always been easy to maintain. And because of those shifts in the balance, a harmless flirtation with Nurse Chapel has evolved into what we can see on her part, an unrequited affection for him. In this episode, he further erodes the controls over his emotions when he uses his more extreme feelings to attract the Gorn with a display of real aggression. Spex taps into his more violent side, and after the threat, he finds it hard to be able to turn those feelings off. So it's ironic that he reveals this to Chapel only to extend the list of secrets that he's confided in her, thereby creating more emotional ties between the two of them. And this will definitely be picked up in season two. I know it will.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. So now we want to go to the season one finale, A Quality of Mercy, which resolves Captain Pike's quandary as to whether he should attempt to change his tragic fate as foretold by the Klingon time crystals he encountered while commanding the discovery. By this time, Pike has tried to convince himself that changing this event could possibly save the lives of two cadets who died in the accident that would lead to Pike's disfigurement and incapacitation. So he's just really looking at really more the micro level of what would happen um, if he could possibly change it, maybe he could save the lives of a couple of, uh, of young people. But like It's a Wonderful Life, A Quality of Mercy depicts Pike, uh, uh, his future, if he were able to avoid the fate that was revealed to him by the time crystal. This new future occurs during the events of a critical moment in the Federation from the classic next the original series episode, Balance of Terror. It reimagines this pivotal moment in Romulan Federation hostilities by placing Pike in charge of the Enterprise instead of Kirk. The episode provides a perfect bookend to the themes and circumstances of of episode one, which introduced us to Pike, who was paralyzed by what the future had in store for him. He had to be ordered back to the Enterprise by his friend and mentor, Admiral April. Laced in and out of this season, we've watched Pike wrestle with the fate awaiting him in seven years. He's confided in close confidants and former lovers. He's pondered the weight of his responsibilities periodically throughout various episodes, Pike has even been offered access to the miracles of the Majalan medicine, provided he accept those gifts come with the price of a child's suffering. But this time, Pike is forced to look in the face of one of those cadets he will fail to rescue, an innocent boy who looked up to him, and because of that, he hungers to join Starfleet. It's this encounter that convinces Pike to change the future. However, this episode confirms Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. As we've seen before, you can't simply change one aspect of an incident without it creating ripples throughout the timeline, the consequences of which changes everything, and not for the better. Pike learns that choices, even well-meaning ones, don't always result in positive outcomes. In this alternative timeline, Pike's failure to accept his true fate leads to disastrous consequences for the Federation. And also, we want to give more kudos, and that is to the creative team behind the episode, uh, which took great pains to replicate the overall look and feel of balance of terror, you know, from the original series. For the most part, they were successful. Beyond repeating passages of dialogue from the original series episode, the director used the same blocking in certain scenes, while the cinematographer replicated camera angles, coloring, and dramatic lighting of the original series director of photography Jerry Finerman. These efforts come together with 21st century technology to create an inspired homage to the original series episode.
1: Yeah, I thought that they captured it perfectly. Um, It would have been nice if they had found an actor who looked a little bit more like Mark Leonard to (laughs) play the Romulan commander. But, you know, aside from that, I think that they really did capture a lot of the elements and they also brought new things to it. Yes, and the the new Kirk wasn't that annoying, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll go on. But the uh, the last episode that we want to talk about from from Stranger Worlds is "Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach." We want to add this as an honorable mention, um, although we didn't choose it for our out of our top ten. We did think it was a significant. Episode and it really again tackled with a really meaty, difficult, um, philosophical story. Lift Us Where um, Suffering Cannot Reach, as recommended by listener Tony Caselli, was um, wonderful because it, it's been said that science fiction isn't always about the future but rather about the present. And that's the premise of many of this original series episodes in which they tackle a political or social issue of the day in a thinly veiled futuristic situation. Um, In Lift Us Where Suffering Cannot Reach, the story is also an allegory of our present day conditions. The moral dilemma is that all of the benefits of the Majalan society are sustained by the suffering and the eventual death of a child. No one seems to understand that it's a price too high to pay. Tony commented on this episode by saying,
0: Felt like a classic original series or next generation episode. Lifts us where suffering cannot reach uh, is such a great exploration of tolerance, other culture, and the question of what atrocities do we embrace for comfort and stability. We do that here on Earth now in many ways. And that episode really made you think about that. And it made me love Pike even more.
1: Oh, I agree with you, Adele. And the sadness about this episode is that when Pike comes to the realization of what's going on, and he attempts to intercede and try to save that child, and he realizes that his actions will change Absolutely nothing. Right, like he's powerless. Yes. and he just has to walk away. <laughs> it is so deflating. Yes, it's, you know it's so challenging. So, but but that's actually some of the makes what makes it so poignant an episode. It's moments like this in episodes like these that illustrate why we have been watching Star Trek our entire lives. That's right. Star Trek hasn't always been perfect. Occasionally, shows in the franchise have reflected the offensive racism, misogyny, and moral laziness that the series have been known for critiquing over time. But at its best, Star Trek has always shown us humanity's possibility of creating a better world, built on valuing one another rather than exploiting each other. Now, you probably have noticed that we didn't have any episodes coming from Picard. (laughs) So listeners to the podcast are, should be well aware of our disappointment with both season one and season two of that series. Now we won't take time to recount our criticisms. That's been well documented, but let us just be said that we've seen Patrick Stewart give far greater performances with much better material yes. on other occasions. Yes. <laughs> and we believe that the franchise is capable of delivering a product worthy of its cast and production team, and also us, our the dedicated fans. Yes. And whether that will happen, will we will soon see with Picard Season 3, beginning on Thursday, February 16th.
0: The third and final season of Picard will reunite all the major cast members of the Next Generation series, with the exception of Will Wheaton, who played Wesley Crusher. If you thought there was any ambiguity about the focus of the season, you need to look no further than the <laughs> title of the first episode called "That The Next Generation. Ironic. There are high expectations the season will provide a fitting conclusion to the story of that series' characters, much the way the film Star Trek Undiscovered Country served the original series cast. And,
1: and, and then they came back, a couple of them came back for generations. Yeah. But, you know, we, we'll ignore that.
0: We'll ignore that.
1: Overall, yeah. from what we've heard, um, reviews have been positive from, the, from viewers and, and critics who have received screeners of the episodes in advance, or who went to the season premiere just this past week. Of course, they have been prohibited from including any spoilers in any of their comments, but they have spoken to really strong, positive reaction to the storyline that, that was presented. But we would like to share an excerpt of one of those reviews from Daily Star Trek news writer T. Rick's Jones, who writes, The way
0: television shows are written has changed over the last 45 years, adapting to audiences' evolving sensibilities. So, too, have the next-generation characters who have changed, some growing apart, others subscribing to a new belief system. The changes won't be for everyone, and that's okay. But for my money, this is the best season of Star Trek Picard. It's nice to see my old friends together again after 20 years, seeing them as they see each other with a new perspective. If this is the end of the Next Generation cast adventures, is it a good send-off? I can't answer that without viewing the remaining episodes of the season, but from what I've seen so far, it's a good start.
1: So what Adele and I have done for Picard is we've come up with a list of our hopes for this final season. Yes. And I'll go first. Okay. That there is no mention of Picard being an android. No. And that plot twist has been incongruent with Picard's character and for the most part proved to be extremely inconsequential to the storyline that's been developed since the end of season one.
0: Yes. Okay, secondly... We hope that they disregard any notion of a romantic relationship between Laris and Picard, which last season seemed forced and ill-conceived. Like many fans, we did not understand why the second season dealt with Picard not being able to maintain any deep relationships, yet there was no mention of his involvement with Dr. Beverly Crusher. Apparently, the Crusher-Picard relationship will be dealt with this season. (laughs) And we hope it's done in a satisfactory way.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Number three, we want all of the next generation characters and Seven and Nine and Rafi to have meaningful story arcs and interactions so that we don't see anybody being abused or wasted or feeling, you know, underused. And we specifically... Specifically, don't want to see Rafi either drugged out or dealing with some horrifically emotionally traumatizing experience for ten episodes. That's
0: right. There are there are other character arcs and plot twists that could be put in put in besides those things.
1: Right. I mean, they've already killed off or gotten rid of every other character that was originally in the first season of the right. show. Yeah,
0: people so, that we cared about. <laughs> some, people,
1: some people that we really didn't care about. And, yeah. and other characters that were not developed well or served That's well right. by the storyline. Um, so, okay. yeah, you got two left. Treat them right. Right.
0: And number four, we would like each air episode to be characterized by a well-written logical narrative informed by past events. Hopefully, Picard writers were inspired by Strange New Worlds and Prodigy episodes that showed how weaving events of the past into current episodes can enrich character arcs and plot lines and better better emotionally engage the viewer.
1: So what we're saying is we don't want any proto-Borgs being beamed into the walls of Shadow Bicard oh centuries earlier. And then people come back and live there in the future and never say anything about
0: it. I know, that's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and finally, we share Jones's sentiment that we would like this season to be a worthy send-off for the next generation cast members whose body of work in the Star Trek universe continues to entertain us.
0: Okay, so now uh let's move to Star Trek news.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, f- the first one is going is about Will Wheaton. If you're a fan of Star Trek actor and Ready Room host Will Wheaton, then you will want to check out his latest blog post on his site willwheaton.net dated February 10th, 2023. We won't go into much detail about what he writes because we don't want to spoil it for you. However, he does provide a touching account of attending the Picard season three premiere in Los Angeles on February 9th. Will's story provides another example of the humanity and loving kindness of Jonathan Frakes.
1: Yeah, it will it will choke you up. It's it's a it's a really, really nice tribute. Yes. Secondly, we want to talk about the 2023 Star Trek series schedule. So according to TrekMovie.com, 2023 is shaping up to be much like 2022 with up to 50 total episodes of new original Trek series. All
0: right.
1: Um, things kick off, obviously, February 16th with the debut of the third season of Picard. It ha- It has previously been confirmed that in 2023, Paramount Plus will stream the second season of Stranger Worlds and the fourth season of Lower Decks and the fifth season of Discovery. In addition, it is expected that the second season of Prodigy will be broken into two 10-episode volumes, with the first half being broadcast in 2023 and the second half of the season likely debuting in 2024.
0: All right, so we're looking to forward so we, to a lot of study. Yeah,
1: we're going to be working a lot this 52 <laughs> this, you know, So it's going to be quite an experience.
0: And now we have a sad note about Annie Wershing. While this podcast was on break, we were saddened by the news of the of the death of Annie Wershing, who lost her battle with cancer on January 29th at the young age of 45. She had been diagnosed with cancer in 2020 but she continued to pursue her life and her craft
1: as reported by the daily star trek news the star trek fans know her amazing performance as the board queen in season two of star trek picard but she's also made her television debut in a trek role as katara leon in star trek enterprises season one episode oasis Worshing was
0: born and raised in St. Louis and earned a BFA in musical theater in 1999 from Milliken University in Decatur, Illinois. Among her many screen appearances, she also portrayed Renee Walker in 37 episodes of 24. The show's director and executive producer, John Cassar said that Worthing took my breath away Annie became more than a workmate. She became a real friend to me, my family, and every cast and crew member that worked with her.
1: Wershing's husband, actor Stephen Full, said, there is a cavernous hole in the soul of this family today. But she left us the tools to fill it. She found wonder in the simplest things. She didn't require music to dance. She taught us not to wait for adventure to find you. Go find it. It's everywhere and find it. We shall besides her husband. She is survived by her three sons, ages 12 and younger.
0: So in closing, we'll be back next week with our analysis of the next generation, the premiere episode of star Trek, Picard season three,
1: but before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to age of discovery with people, you know, who enjoy star Trek as well. Also, Since we've been producing this show since September 2017, we want to suggest that you explore our full catalog of episodes.
0: Our podcast includes analysis of every episode of Star Trek Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds, as well as reviews of the Short Treks and several special topic shows, Please recommend our podcast to your friends or family members who want to dig deeper into the Star Trek universe.
1: And finally, thank you to thousands of our fans who have checked out our video posts over the, the holiday break, which was an in memoriam to Star Trek artists we lost in 2022. It's been wildly reviewed and we appreciate all the new listeners that we've gotten from it. So, if you would like to view it, you can go to our website, startrekaod.net, or you can pick, find it by searching on YouTube under that title, In Memoriam Star Trek Artists We Lost in 2022.
0: But until that time. Like,
1: subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD, at Facebook, at our Facebook.com at Star Trek AOD. And as the aforementioned website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. You can also email us, just like Ramona, Tony, and Mark did, um, to the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then... Live
0: long and prosper.